couple of things really quick here. A couple of weeks ago, we read verse 1 through 6 of chapter 5. And James was warning against relying on riches and purposely heaping up treasures. And here we see him calling us to something different. He told us, don't go after those things, but rather be patient. Is anyone in here just really good with patience? A couple of people actually raised their hand. I don't like you because I have such a hard time being patient. I really do like you, but still, let me, let me explain. I was even telling Austin, who is running sound back there tonight, um, I walked up and I said, do those lights turn off the middle ones? And as I walked up and said that, I just shut them off. I told him, you should know that as I'm speaking, you have 4.9 seconds to tell me or I will shut them off. It's an issue. And uh, some of you are like, whoa, like tight, like wound really tight. Yes, sometimes, but honestly, it's kind of just the flow that I get. I don't even, I don't think. I am the guy that if I walked up and said, whoa, is that a bomb? I would pull the wire and every, seriously, the whole thing would explode and everyone would, yeah. I don't like waiting. When I think of patience, I think of that word waiting. Anyone with me doesn't like waiting? I like answers when I ask somebody a question. I want a real true answer. Um, and if it's not a real true answer, I guess I'd just rather, I'd rather hear like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I like results. I like, I like when, okay, we did something. Now here is a result. I was thinking, have you ever, maybe you're an impatient person. And I'm not saying that I do all these things, but I do all these things. Have you ever driven up to a place that you want to go out to eat with your friends or something? And you drive up and it's busy and you don't want to wait. So you just leave and go down the street to the other place. Am I the, okay, a couple of other people have done that. Or the gas station, have you ever been driving on the freeway and you see the gas station and from the freeway you can see like that maybe one side of it is full. So you continue on like 40 miles down the road even though you're about to run out of gas because you're impatient and you just want to keep going and you want to keep moving forward. I did that once um, going down to San Diego in my, um, I had gotten a new truck and I think I went 45 miles past where it said it was completely empty Part of it was pride. The other part was just wanting to see like when it would actually run out. And it was, dude, it was like I planned it. We literally got off the freeway and coasted for real. If you've ever done that, coasted into the gas station. I was like, what's up? <laughs> I got every single penny's worth of that gas. Maybe you're impatient. You, you take a task into your own hands because you just don't want to wait, whatever that, that thing might be. Or maybe you're that person like me, that goes behind the counter at the coffee shop to get your own stuff because you're like, they're busy. No, and I, yeah, totally. And like, usually I make friends with the people at the coffee shops anyway, so I kind of feel, it's like my thing. It's so that I feel comfortable, but also I can go get my own creamer or whatever it is that I want. You know, take some of the tips or whatever and go get some food down. No, I'm just kidding. You know, maybe it's something like not funny, like you just have a knack for jumping into relationships way too quick. It's just like, oh, that might be cool, and you're there. And you know how that goes. You know how that plays out. Or maybe you take the actual relationship too quick, too far. Even kids have issues, especially kids have issues with patience. We had a, um, a family fun night here after our summer Bible blast, and we had some bounce houses and stuff outside like we're going to have at Fellowship at the Park this week. And my kids were in line, and I was talking to some parents. Aubrey and I were talking to some, some different parents, and I noticed that my kids were making it to the front of the line really quick um, because they decided to cut in front of, like, 100 kids. And then finally some kid, like, shoved my son. He's like, he cut. 
And so, and then I just looked at him and he was just smiling. He has no patience. He wants to get up to the front. Look back at verse seven really quickly. I, I really want to drive this home and point this out tonight. Therefore be what? Patient. Can you say it with a little more enthusiasm? Therefore be? Yes, I like that. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. It's interesting, this word, the Greek word for patience here, it means to endure. It's up on the board for you. To suffer long, it involves exercising, understanding, and patience specifically toward a person rather than just a situation. Most of what I just talked about was patience or a lack of patience towards a situation. But this word patience that's being used by James, it's specifically toward a person. Important because the command here is to be patient until the coming of the Lord. This is an event that's going to take place, but it's at an unknown time. Purposely by God at an unknown time. Jesus, uh, or I should say James is literally calling us to be patient in the person of Jesus Christ. And I failed to title this message, but you could, if you wanted to, give it some type of heading like, be patient in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's hard sometimes, isn't it? In fact, if our flesh is really revving, it really feels impossible to fully be patient upon the person of Jesus Christ. Or maybe, and probably, it's just confusing. We're confused about how to be or, or are we patient in the person of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is, Okay, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. I know that, you know, you live within my heart. I also know that your spirit is here with me. Father, I know what your word says, but in this situation, I haven't found the verse for whatever it may be. It doesn't say that in the Bible. And so, Lord, I'm seeking, Lord, what's the answer? Am I being patient or am I not? You know, I was thinking... How often do we actually wonder when Jesus will return? If you're like me, it's pretty often, and it's on the days where you're really having a difficult time. Like, it's kind of become a joke I have with Jesus, but a real joke, where I'm driving away from some situation, and I'm like, and now. I'm serious. I'm telling him, and now. And it would be so awesome if he took us right when I did that one time. I, oh, I'd be so stoked. What would I do? Worship? I would worship him. Okay. Anyway, I don't know. I don't know what I was going to say. I would totally worship him if I... Anyway. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 24 that he will come again. He says in verse 30 of that chapter, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power and, and great glory. He speaks of this event that's taking place that's going to happen before the eyes of some people living on earth. Can you imagine if the rapture actually took place in this generation? It would be amazing. You know, I want to live with that expectancy saying it will be amazing. Amen? It would be phenomenal to, to, to have that take place in this generation, in this lifetime. 
They'll see Jesus on the clouds and they'll see him in great power and in glory. And in the verse 31 describes what he will do. It says, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they'll gather together his elect. So the believers from the four winds, so from every area, from one end of heaven to the other. They come and they gather all those that are committed to Jesus Christ all over the world and they bring them together. And then verses 36 to 39 tell us what's going to happen from there gives us the answer. Like, when is that going to happen? Matthew 24, 36 through 39. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Who knows? No one knows. And people are trying to predict it all the time. It's the latest, greatest mathematician slash televangelist comes up with a certain number or day, and then a bunch of people, you know, huddle together behind the, the walls of a compound waiting upon the second coming of Jesus Christ. Listen, he hasn't told us the exact time on purpose. So, you know, those people won't be right. Those crazies that are out there. But also he wants us to live with that anticipation, that expectation of his second coming, of his return. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. Verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. No one knows except for God. But Jesus does tell us this whole thing is going to unfold. It's going to go down just like, well, Noah's story. Not the Russell Crowe account, but the real account that's found in the Bible. If you remember Noah, you remember that he knew that the flood was coming. God told him that it was going to flood, that it was going to rain. The crazy thing is we don't even know if he had seen rain before. It's debatable between theologians if he'd actually even seen rain. He, of course, he knew what water was and he knew the watering system, but he was told this storm that it was going to rain, it was going to come, it was going to flood. And all we know is that God told him to build an ark. And so he said, okay. And he began to build that ark. And by faith, he built an ark. And by faith, his family got on the ark. He, of course, he had to persuade him some and tell him, like, you need to get on the ark. It was a difficult time, but they ended up coming on the ark with all those stinky animals. And by faith, they were saved from death. But by the lack of faith, and by the, the malicious sin that was taking place at that time in the rest of humanity, well, everyone else perished. They were not ready for the judgment that was to come. Here's the deal. We can look at the story and see that they chose to mock God and be disobedient to God when God had called them to follow after him. They mocked him by living for themselves. They mocked him by living after their own plan their own ways. But the point that Jesus was making here is that Noah was ready. And listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Do you see the picture that James is painting here with Noah? Jesus is coming back and we don't know when, but we're to be prepared. We're to be patient and we're in charge of preparing ourselves, led by the Holy Spirit, with the word of God, but we've been given the task of self-preparation. And a lot of times, most times, we don't know how. Not only on this topic here, okay, salvation and, and end times, 
But in our regular, everyday life, patience is something that all of us struggle with. It may not be surface, like my impatience, right? But every single one of us deals with, well, the problem of a lack of patience in our lives. I love the picture that James gives here. Back to verse 7. We're going to look at it one more time about a farmer. Simple illustration. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. Now, we can still understand what this means by, by thinking about you know, who a farmer was at that time. But in this day and age, when, when Jesus, or excuse me, when James was preaching this, people understood right away. They were like, oh, because most people grew their own food. And if they didn't, their family member down the street did. And they had something that they traded with their family member for that food. The farmer. Think about it for a second. The farmer waits. What an important word here. The farmer waits for the precious fruit. He waits on the thing that his business, his livelihood values most. He has this practice of waiting. And it says that he waits for the first rain. So after he's planted, he waits for that first rain to come and he praises God for it. And then he waits for the second and he waits for, you know, whatever else is to come. And I was thinking he's dependent upon the weather system to bring water and, and for the sun and that whole thing for growth. Really, truly... Whether he acknowledges it or not, he's actually dependent on the work of the Lord. All of those things belong to God. All of those things are, are, are in his hand. Yet the farmer still has a responsibility. It's really easy to say, well, yeah, but the farmer, he just does that. And he waits and whatever, he can just walk away. No, he can't. Well, let me say, he could walk away. But when he comes back, he's probably not going to find what he wants to find. That precious fruit. The farmer has a responsibility, similar to our responsibility. The farmer waits, the farmer watches, but he also does what he can to prepare for the growth. He does what he can to prepare for that increase that's going to come, that, that thing that will, will come from well, his labor of putting things together, but then God's provision making that thing happen and, and causing that fruit to grow. And one day he's going to reap a harvest. He's going to, he's going to be able to eat the harvest that, that, that comes in. And he's going to be able to trade. And, well, he's going to be able to say, awesome. We planted that. God blessed it. And it grew. And now here I have it. And, you know, thinking of other things he's going to have to do. He's going to have to pull weeds. He's going to have to build a scarecrow. Anyone else build a scarecrow in their garden? I have a little tiny garden this year. And it's doing okay. But I thought, you know what? I really think it would be better if there was a scarecrow. It would just be awesome. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking like the actual scarecrow from Wizard of Oz would be awesome, but it might freak us out a little bit because the window is like right next to the kitchen. So I don't know. Shamcrow. <laughs> Above all, in his patience and active patience, he prays expectantly. He prays expectantly. And the important part, he waits patiently. He doesn't get frustrated and say, forget it. This is taking too long. I'm going to go plant something else. Hmm. Or I'm going to go plant somewhere else instead of this place. Or 
I quit, I'm taking my farming equipment and I'm going home. I don't wanna play anymore. I don't wanna be in this game anymore. He waits and he relies upon God. Look at verse eight, continues to comment on this thought. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. James calls us to have this same type of patience. In being patient, James says to establish your heart. Say it with me really quick, me, quickly, excuse me. James says to establish, let's try it. In other words, stabilize your heart. Makes me think of, you know, like medical trauma. I don't know why, but that's where my mind went. I guess I watched too much TV, but the medic stabilizes the patient. There's a, there's a, there's a stabling that takes place. Or if you've ever like, filmed with a camera or you let somebody film with a camera that had really um, shaky hands or they just weren't thinking. When you watch the video, you want to throw up because there was no stabilization. The picture is all over the place and you're trying to watch it and you're just like, oh my goodness, I can't handle this anymore. Isn't that kind of like what life is like when our heart is not stabilized, when we're not fully establishing our heart in the Lord? Paul said something similar to this in 2 Thessalonians 2.17. He says, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Every good work of God and in every good word of God. Both of them. We find comfort and strength in what he's done. We have that privilege. We have that ability. As you read your Bible, as you meditate upon God's word, you can find comfort and strength in all of God's promises Back to the topic here, specifically, as you're in your word, you can find that comfort and that strength and the fact that Jesus is alive and he's coming again. Yes, he will return any time now. And if you're in Christ, you can take great comfort in that. And I think it's important to say at the same time, Christians, don't beat yourself up for not knowing every single thing in the Bible. I think sometimes as Christians, we can beat ourselves up so much that we actually stop getting fed the word of God. We push it out because we're always thinking about what we don't know or what gifts we don't have or what our personality doesn't give to in the, in the Christian walk, in the Christian life. But establish yourself in his word. That's a command and I think even an encouragement, an exhortation to every believer in Christ, to every human being. You have the opportunity, the ability to push past your issues in your heart and have your heart established in the word of God. I want to throw a really cool verse at you quick just to kind of, I don't know, as an example of how to establish yourself. It's in James chapter 1, 17 and 18. This is the New Living Translation. I love this verse. James says, whatever's good and perfect comes to us from God above who created all heaven's lights. Unlike them, he never changes or casts shifting shadows. In his goodness, he chose to make us his own children by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, became his choice possession. These are things we can get excited about, you guys. These are things we can be not so American about. You know what I'm talking about? like where we only get excited about big fireworks or whatever it is that you can see, like what that says right there is that God never changes. He's always good. And oh yeah, by the way, he's chosen you. He's decided to take you into that same goodness and you're gonna dwell with him forever because you're his choice possession. 
Oh yeah. Everything good comes from God. Can I get an amen? amen? This is something we need to preach at ourselves, you guys. Everything good comes from God. You did not come up with that good thing. You are not good at keeping that good thing. That thing belongs to God and every good thing came from him. Oh yeah, it's his. It belongs to him. Alongside that, he never changes. He's always good. Always good. So even if you've had ups and downs, you don't have to stress. He's just as good as when you were doing your very best. You realize that? If you're at a low point tonight, if you're out of energy, if you're spiritually dry, can you focus with me right now on the fact that he is just as good today as the highest point in your life? He is just as good today as he will be when you stand before him in eternity completely healed. Is it going to be better? Are our eyes going to be open? Well, yeah, it's going to be better for us. But listen, he's just as good. Just as precious. Still good when we're not doing very well. Here's the kicker with that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ... That God is, that is this good, and we're just scratching the surface of his goodness and explanation, getting our minds to think about that. He lives within you. No matter how wretched a sinner you are, no matter, no matter how stuck you feel or, or even you are, what you've done, do you realize if you've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, the goodness of God resides inside of you. Man, we can chase after that. Man, doesn't that bring a, just a stabilizing effect to our heart? Lord, I'm screwed up, but you're perfected. You're perfect and you live within me. So often people are trying to find that spot to draw strength from, to, to, to escape from condemnation. Listen, there is no better place than realizing who you are in Jesus Christ, amen? And who he is in you. It's actually what everyone is seeking after as they find all these new things that last for a little while or these ways of life. It's so such a bummer when you see people, they find a way of life to chase after that's, that's not fully God, but they can do it for years. But at some point their boat gets rocked and they're like, oh man, what am I gonna do? I gotta find a new way to live. And I'm not, I'm not putting down like, always trying to, to be the best person that you can and, and love the, the most. Those are all things that Jesus talks about. But listen, let us never lose the fact that in Christ, the goodness of God resides inside of us and it was good and perfect at the beginning and it will be at the end and it is right now. Oh man, that stabilizes my heart. Look at some more instruction, verse nine, on being patient on his return. Don't grumble against one another. Brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I hate that word grumble because when I read the Old Testament, when I read about the Exodus account, I see that for 40 years, the people of God wandered through the desert and they were not allowed, a whole generation of people were not allowed to enter into the promised land because of their complaining, their grumbling. I think I, I wrote it on my hand the other day because I was trying to remember it and then it got wiped off. But if I remember right, I, sometimes I write things on my hand because then I can remember them. I think it was 600, 
603,548 people did not make it into the promised land. They all died in the desert. Two made it into the promised land out of that generation, Joshua and Caleb, because they refused to give into that whole grumbling thing. Crazy when you think about the impact that grumbling has on our lives and really how God's just not down with it. Grumbling is really easy to do. Complaining is something that happens really, just, it just really flows out of us. Especially if there's something that comes up that's easy to complain about. We might even act like we're not really complaining, but we're, we're like just sharing information or giving a prayer request, whatever it may be. But what does grumbling or complaining do for the big picture? Something I've really been thinking upon today. We can, we can kind of make excuses and complain and whatever, but what does that do for the kingdom of God? What does that do to the big picture when we're caught up in that complaining? Are we, are we making you know, any progress? Is there any forward motion? Are we, are we getting any traction in this life? Are we living for the kingdom? We're not. And listen, it says here, the judge is standing at the door. It's talking about Jesus. He's coming back as a judge, not just to judge the world, but to find out the faithfulness or the lack of faithfulness in believers in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, this is the New Living Translation, tells us, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We'll each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in our bodies. Oh man, the bottom line here, we're gonna be pretty bummed out before Jesus, if we've spent all of our time complaining about the hardships with other people or even the things that, oh man, I just can't do this or that. If we spent all of our time complaining, we're gonna be like, whoops, bummer. So James tells us when you're having a tough time, I love this. This is kind of like what your parents or what our parents did with us when we were growing up. And now I, I share stuff like this with my kids. James tells us, you know, you're having that rough time. Just remember what the prophets went through. It's that whole thing when, if you've ever complained about having to walk someplace, your parents tell you, oh yeah, well I had to walk, you know, 17 miles in the snow with no shoes with like a bucket of water on my head or whatever it might be. But look, it's real. Verse 10, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Gives us a real true example. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. The prophets we see in the Old Testament, they were persecuted. They were abused physically, verbally, emotionally, all because they carried the message of God. The same, the very thing that we're doing, carrying the message of God, carrying the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews talked about this, talked about the prophets in Hebrews eleven thirty two through 40. We'll throw it up on the screen for you. It said, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, that's awesome, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, so cool, Quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, verse 35. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. You know, most of these things 
you know, taking away that last one, most of these things you're like, yeah, that's awesome, that's awesome, that's awesome. I want to glory in those things. And then you get to verse 36. The end of 35 kind of plays into this. It sounds awesome. And then you see still others had trial of mockings, scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They had it rough, right? They had a difficult time and they didn't get to know Jesus yet. Think of that for a second. He had not been born. They were carrying the message, the good news, the gospel, and they had not even seen the Messiah. They didn't have relatives that had seen the Messiah, I should say, being born. They, didn't, they, they knew, but they didn't know. Do you know what I mean? They just had messages about him. They had these prophecies and they carried these things everywhere that they went. And they had struggles just like everybody else. And they got beat up for sharing these prophecies. They had faith. Got to give them the faith. They had patience. I was thinking, we have the word. We have the testimony. We did those testify nights this summer. And those were awesome. We have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We have eyewitness accounts Biblically and historically. Of course, I believe that the Bible is historically accurate, and I hope you do too. But I want to point out for the skeptic, I was in that spot one day, we have biblical accounts and we have historical accounts that coincide. We have those. I think the most important thing for us to know, I always think about this very thing, when I, when I read that scripture or I hear someone share the scripture that whoever diligently seeks after God, they'll find him. I believe that to be totally true. I always think of this fact. We can see that Jesus has fulfilled so many of the prophecies that were shared. By one person's account, 353 of those prophecies he fulfilled from the Old Testament to the New. And still we doubt. Or I shouldn't say we doubt, but the world doubts, however you want to look at it. This lack of faith, this, this lack of patience, this, well, I don't want anything to do with that. Well, because there's not a real seeking taking place. So, like our parents tell us about the walking thing, or whatever it might be for you, we've got it pretty good, don't we? We have, we have it, like, made for us pretty well. And James here, he mentions another guy, the perseverance of Job. Or Job, as I like to call him sometimes. Wouldn't that be cool if your name was Job? Anyway, a quick summary of his story. Just really quick about Job. His faith was tested. Satan went to God to ask for Job by name. And Job was a wealthy man. And then at a point in his life, he began to lose a few things. And he literally lost everything. He lost his wealth. He lost his children. So he lost his family. He lost his health. He got really sick. Boils all over his body. His marriage, he was losing his marriage. His marriage was rough. His wife was upset, you know, with what was going on, even with him. His friendships were difficult. He was done. But God was always good. 
Even as his friends doubted and gave him bad counsel, God was still good. Even as he wrestled through those doubts, God was still good. And if you read the very last chapter of his book, you can see that he ended up with at least twice as much as what he had lost. How did he do that? He was just some awesome guy who had like a unique personality. Maybe those things are true. But the real reason that that happened, the goodness of God, you know, was able to manifest in his life. It was patience, James points out to us. He had this real, true patience taking place in his life. He was established in the Lord. And so he endured this difficulty and he was rewarded greatly. God's intention all along was for Job to know, it says right here, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Listen, you guys, really quickly. What the devil intended for good, God chose to work through to reveal his goodness to Job. Do you see that? And he wants to do the same thing with us. He will do the same thing with us if we're seeking in that capacity. What was Job's part? It was patience and having his heart established in God. Look at verse 12 and we'll finish. But above all, my brethren, don't swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. I was trying to figure out how exactly this played in just the last couple of weeks. And Lord, you know, where do you want this verse? Do you want it with the first part of the sermon or the last or whatever? But man, this flows perfectly with what we just went through. The Jews in James' time, they made two different kind of oaths. They made binding oaths and then they made non-binding oaths. Oaths that did not include the name of God. They were considered non-binding, so they wouldn't say God's name in it. They would say someone else or some other thing. And it was like a way of crossing your fingers or saying, I swear on my mama or whatever it might be. You know, doing that whole thing like, yeah, I swear, and crossing your fingers behind your back. (laughs) It was a way of saying, well, this might be a lie, this might not come true, or I don't fully know, but yes, I swear. And James tells him, don't do that. James says, don't do that, don't agree to do that. Man, we say some dumb things, don't we? We say some really dumb things sometimes. Maybe I'm, only, maybe I'm talking just for myself. My wife could tell you I say some really dumb things. I was also thinking we commit to some things that we can't commit to or that we shouldn't commit to. We say, yeah, I'll commit to that. Yeah, I can, I can commit to that. When our heart's not fully there, when we're not fully committed, we say yes and we agree to things that we don't fully agree with sometimes because we don't want to ruffle feathers or we're afraid or we just can't we all just get along or whatever it might be for you. We mess up with our words all of the time. Proverbs 10, 19, I hate and love this verse, says in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. I heard an awesome quote on a message I was listening to a few weeks back. It said, cover your mouth with both hands. You know why? Well, it's good to cover your your mouth with both hands because then you can't stick your foot in your mouth. You're not able to get that thing in there. James is saying, keep your speech as simple and straightforward as you can. Be careful what you commit to. Remain patient.